Merry Christmas to you. Welcome to Advent at Union Chapel. So glad you're here. Christmas is the highs and lows of life, isn't it? Around the holidays, all of our memories and emotions are very poignant, and everyone has a story of highs and lows. Um, but could I just encourage you this holiday season to lean into the to the merry side of Christmas rather than that dark side that many of us have experienced, and to invite the peace of God into our lives. And I trust that you'll do that. I, occasionally, I will uh, come up with my top 10 suggestions for Christmas. I want to share those with you right now this morning. Number one is uh, attend a Christmas Eve candlelight service. Uh, th- there are three available, as you know, one, three, and five on Christmas Eve right here in this room. Uh, come and bring a friend. It should be a great time. Number two, invest some time caring for others. That's a great idea, and I hope you'll do that. Number three, drive around and look at the light displays. That's always encouraging. So far, Beth and I haven't made the drive, but so far, a Chick-fil-A restaurant has the best Christmas lights, I think, in town. <laughs> not even sure what that means. Number four, feast with gratitude and eat too much without guilt. Can I get an amen for that one? I'm, I'm, I'm strong on the gratitude. I'm still working on the guilt part. I'm not, I'm not good at that. I don't know why. Number five, take a small gift to your neighbor. Introduce yourself. We live in a culture now where people don't even actually know the names of their neighbors, let alone know them. It's the electric garage door syndrome. You know, people leave the house every morning. The door goes up. They leave. They come home at night. They push the button. They drive in their garage. The door goes down, and you never meet your neighbors. Don't even know them. Make an effort. That will be meaningful. Invite them to church with you. Number six, do not turn down fudge or Christmas cookies this year. Listen, a piece of fudge isn't going to kill you. Eat, eat some fudge. It'll make you happy. Number seven, sing Christmas carols loudly. On key, that's optional. Just sing loud. That's what we expect. Number eight, watch It's a Wonderful Life, that movie, at least once. Beth and I always take time to watch it at least once a year. It will encourage your perspective on life. It'll make you a better person if you watch it. Number nine, greet people with Merry Christmas. Heads up, eye contact, cheerful smile, and a loud, crisp voice, Merry Christmas. And if folks are offended by that, too bad. It's Christmas, and, and we're going to be merry about it. Number 10, give yourself afresh to the Christ of Christmas. Good advice, right? So take those uh, helpful hints and enjoy, enjoy the season. I... Uh, want to talk about the birth of Jesus these next four weeks. Some of you are new to the faith. This is the first Christmas of being a Christian. What a wonderful moment for you. So great. This is my 51st Christmas as a Christian. It's my 40, I haven't, calculated this, 41, my 44th Christmas preaching at Christmas. Do you know how difficult it, no, no, oh, well, okay, well, yeah, yeah, you're right, that's, it's, it's hard, because it's a fairly defined uh, set of characters and events. You got the baby, you got Mary and Joseph, 
you know, you got cattle lowing, you got some wise guys, you got some shepherds. That's about it. 44 years. Here's my goal this, this, this Christmas, from my perspective. I want to see Christmas for the first time. I want to see it anew. I want to imagine it for the first time and appreciate the wonder of it, the wonder of Christmas. So I invite you into that kind of mindset and attitude. Today, I want to talk about the wonder of a star, and I hope it will be meaningful to you. We can learn a lot about God just by being in the world. We can look around at the created order. We can look at the, ex- the expanse of the universe. This is a big place we live in, uh, and the earth is very small, and we are smaller still on it, and it just makes you wonder. But we can appreciate the power of God who could create a universe like this. And we can look at creation and also understand order and beauty. That's a great thing. We see beauty all around us, and it makes us think how remarkable the mind of God must be to create all of this. We have a conscience within us. This is an impossible category for atheists and people who ignore the existence of God to come to terms with. You can't explain it. How is it that everyone who's ever been alive has a basic sense of what's right and what's wrong? Curious, isn't it? It's a conscience. It's a God thing. He gave us a conscience like this. And, of course, we can infer that God himself, the creator God, is a moral God because we have a sense of direction. It's fascinating. The psalmist asked the question this way, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? As as great as uh, the world is, as small as the planet is, unimpressive sun that we have, our sun is one of, of billions of suns, about 300 billion stars, suns like our own sun in our own galaxy. There are two or 300 billion other galaxies. It's just mind-boggling. And what is man that thou art mindful of him? Why would he even notice us, let alone want to be in relationship with us? This is a wonder. It is wonderful. And that's the kind of wonder that I want us to get in touch with. Who would dream that a God so great, so grand, so powerful would actually come to the planet, put on an earth suit, suffer the shame and degradation and rejection of the world, bear upon his own life the sins of the world in order to offer us community with him? It's a wonderful thing. We can know a lot about God when we look at the created order, but one thing we cannot know about God apart from Christmas is how much he loves us, how much you matter to God. And that's what Christmas is really all about, that God would stoop down, he would descend all the way down to the ground here on the earth in order to reveal his love to us. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Well, that's the introduction to the message. That's a whole sermon right there, isn't it? I mean, that was, that was worth your time just all by itself. Let's talk about the wise men for a little bit today, the wonder of this star. I want to give you three things that we learn from these guys that may be very applicable to our lives. Here's the first thing. These guys had eyes to see. Everyone say, eyes to see. Eyes to see. What did they see? What, who are these guys? Well, we don't know a lot about them. We know they're from the east. 
You go east from Jerusalem and, and, and you come to a place called Babylon, ancient Persia, modern-day Iran or Iraq. The Greek word for magi is magos. It literally means a scholar-priest. So you, you get an idea of who these guys were, highly educated, culturally sophisticated. They, they bore with them expensive gifts, so they were very wealthy. And so they're out like at the top of the socioeconomic food chain. These guys are... These guys are connected, and, and yet here we find them traveling this great distance, hundreds of miles, uh, rigorous, rigorous miles, and why? Apparently, they have eyes to see something that most people missed. They realized that there was something else in their lives, something missing, if you will, even though they had everything the world has to offer, there was something internally, an instinct they had, an intuition they had that there was something more in the world that they needed. They, 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 they realized for themselves there's got to be something else beyond ourselves that we need in this life. And even though they had all the wealth, the success, recognition, all the stuff, all the pleasure, they did not come to the conclusion that many people come to, which is, if I just have more of all of those things, the stuff that I really like, if I just have more of that stuff, more of those experiences, then I will find peace and fulfillment in my life. These guys had all of those things and then some, but their conclusion was, I'm unsatisfied, I'm unfulfilled. And they had eyes to understand that. They were wise because they knew that what they needed was not more of the same, but something different. And we can learn from that, I think. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, a fascinating verse. It tells us that God has placed eternity in all of our hearts. He's put eternity in us. So we have an understanding, a knowing, an instinct, an intuition that we're going to live forever. Eternity is in our hearts. And I've described recently how fascinated human beings are around the subject. People write books about it. They're bestsellers. We're, we, we want to know more about that because we have a sense, you know, there's something else, something more, something after this life. And, and we suspect it's very, very important, very meaningful. And so these guys had eyes to see that. The psalmist wrote it this way. Look on the screen at Psalm 42, verse 7. I love this phrase. And, and David simply write, writes, deep calls to deep. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Deep calls to, to deep. In other words, at some time in our lives, we all feel it. Something deep within telling us not to be satisfied with the shallow things or the casual things or the lesser things of life because we were made for more. God help us to see those things. Many people lose that sense of yearning and seeking and hunger for more. Because life happens, you know, try to make a living, try to raise your kids, try to pay your bills, a million other things, and we get distracted in life. But then Christmas comes along every year, and we've been distracted, and there's all kinds of challenges and all kinds of distractions in our lives, but then there's this Christmas, and people put up lights, and, they, and it's a big deal, and there's special songs, and there, there, there are special special rhythms to the whole holiday, and it makes us at least pause to go, what in the world is going on? What does all this mean? Is it possible that God, Almighty God, can be found in a 
lowly place like a manger? Is it possible that Almighty God can actually be found in mundane places like my life? Is it possible that that God really wants to connect with me in some deep and significant way? That's what David was talking about, deep, calls unto deep. That God, God and the wonderment of who he is wants to touch us at the deepest levels of our lives. And it's there we find meaning, significance. So let me put this just simple statement on the screen. It's just to, to summarize what I've just been talking about. The wise men were wise because they did not allow their souls to be anesthetized by possessions and success. They wanted more. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, uh, they arrive in Jerusalem and they ask King Herod, hey, where's the king? The one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And it's interesting because he asked the king, now let me, let me just pause a real practical question. Why is it that these guys have traveled hundreds of miles following a star and when they arrive in Jerusalem, no one knows anything about the star? It's a star. It's in the sky. It's there. Scientists don't, don't know what it is. They think maybe, maybe it was a nova, maybe it was a comet, maybe it was the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in alignment, you know, that created a little bigger light in the sky. But the star was there for anyone, everyone to see. Everyone, everyone could have seen it, could have noticed it, could have acknowledged it, could have wondered about it. But these three wise men, well, we say three, we don't know how many there were. These men from the east go to the king, Herod, hey, we've been following this star and we've interpreted the meaning. There's a king who's been born. Wow, this is something. Comedian uh, Bill Ingvall, some of you know him, he's a part, of, part of a comedy tour and he uses a, a common phrase in his comedic act when he uses the phrase, here's your sign. And he'll describe some story about some, you know, rednecks who've done something stupid. <laughs> when you're hearing the story, you're, you think, oh, this is not going to end well. You know, what were they thinking? Why couldn't they see what was going to happen, you know, when someone falls off a cliff or whatever? And at the end of it, you know, he summarizes the, the obvious, you know, like, duh, why didn't they see that coming? And so his little phrase is, here's your sign. You do something stupid, here's your sign. And it's, and it's hilarious. We struggle with the same kind of experiences. There are signs all around us. For example, many of us, I know I do, we feel like we need to be better than we are. You know, I, I want to be more unselfish or accepting or forgiving or joyful. And I'm not. And, it's, and it's, it's hard for me to be the person I really want to be. And... Many people miss, miss the mark, though they miss the sign. What could that possibly mean to you if you have this internal consideration that you should be a better person than you really are? Maybe that's a sign from God. Maybe it's a sign from God saying, you know, I can help you with that. You've tried to be a good person, unselfish person, a giving person, a generous person, a joyful person, a positive person, and you don't seem to be able to pull that off. Maybe you need some help. It's a sign. It's a sign from God. Maybe you felt that way just like I did when I held my, our firstborn son or your first grandchild. Many of us have had this moment when we've held a newborn 
And, and if this is your baby, you think, what has happened? I mean, if someone walks up to you at that time and says, you know, life is really meaningless. We're all here by accident. There's no purpose. There's no plan. We came from nothing. We're going nowhere. And you're holding this baby. I mean, you know the, you know the, the biology of it. You know the genetics of it. But if someone tries to tell you this is meaningless, you just go, well, that's just not true because this is a miracle. This is a miracle from God. I'm holding in my hands like eternal potential. What has happened? Uh, and folks can't see it for that. But it's a sign, isn't it? It's a, it's a big sign. Or maybe it's as simple as a sunset or some mountain vista or looking at a standing field of corn here in Indiana, watching the wind blow the tops of it. Or maybe it's uh, listening to a great piece of music and it takes you to a place. It, it moves you and you wonder, there's, there's something's going on, something great, there's something grand, there's something magnificent going on in this world. And you, you can't quite reach it. But could it be that God's just giving you another sign this is an indication, hey, I have more for you. I have more for you. And so follow the instinct you have for that more. On Christmas morning when you open the presents with your family and you have this sensation, and, and you all know what I'm talking about, that giving a special gift to someone and to see them open that gift and find such pleasure in receiving it, and suddenly you realize it's a lot more blessed to give than it is to receive. So that's a sign. That's a sign from God that you're on the right track. Life's full of signs. I just met a new friend just on Friday, two days ago. And he, we believe God's going to use him to help us in some of our mission initiatives here. And I sat down with him for a few hours. I had not met him, just through other associations. And, and I sat down with a couple of hours. I said, tell me your story. And he told me about how he came to faith. He grew up in a, in a difficult home life. You know, his dad abandoned them when they were small, and then his mother remarried, and he kind of got lost in the shuffle, this, this boy. And, and, and by the time he was 13, he told me that he was selling drugs on the street. And by the time he was 16, he'd gotten a job in a local fast food restaurant, and he was actually selling drugs through the drive-up window. I'm thinking, this guy's an entrepreneur. He's got, he's got skills. If he can just get those focused in the right way, we can, make, we can really get some work done. <laughs> he told me about his own salvation. He was about 16 years old, and Christian friends of his kept inviting him to come to church, and he rebuffed them, and he was belligerent about that. No thanks. They were going to have a youth retreat, like a fall retreat at a, a different camp. Come to our retreat. And he said no, and they, they just persisted with him until he finally made a deal with them. I'll go to your retreat if you promise never to talk to me about this again. And they agreed. And he goes to this retreat, and one of the first other teenagers he meets there is a, is a, is a boy that he knows and, and admires. He's a music, musician, and he has some notable skills. And he walks up to him kind of incredulous. What are you doing here? And, and the young musician says to him, well, I'm a Christian. And they spend the next few hours talking about the Bible and talking about a faith in Christ. And then my new friend said he stayed up all night. He went out to where the campfire had been lit that night before and, and sat around the circle of this campfire and watched the fire burn down to, to coals. And he was there reading his Bible and 
and trying to figure out what was happening to him until the sun came up the next morning. And he said, when the sun came up, he looked at me now, you know, tears were starting to form in his eyes. And he said, all I can tell you is the following morning when the sun came up, I could see. I could see. He said, I knew I had become a Christian. The Bible's clear about this, that the, that the devil actually blinds the minds and the eyes of those who unbelieve. We could all tell the story, couldn't we? Man, I was blind. I was stumbling around in life. Gosh. But then, it's like the light came on, and everything that was unclear became clear, and I could see. I could see my way. I had eyes to see, and that's when I reached for Jesus. And my faith became real. These guys had eyes to see. Everyone say eyes to see. How about say it this way? Give me eyes to see. Give me eyes to see. The second thing we learned from these guys is they had the courage to follow. The wise men not only had eyes to see the star as a sign, they also had the courage to follow that sign until they found Jesus. The most amazing part of this whole story is that no one went with them. Herod goes to the scribes and the scholars and says to them, hey, do your prophets indicate the, the location of the birth of your Messiah, your king? And they go, oh yeah. Yeah, it's explicitly clear. It's 12 miles from here in a little town called Bethlehem. You know, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. And, and they knew it. They knew it. And Herod got the information. And, it's, and the Bible says that all of Jerusalem was troubled with them. So the news got around. Hey, did you see that caravan of those rich guys, those fat cats from, from Persia? They're looking for, the, for Messiah. They're heading out toward Bethlehem. And no one went with them. What is going on? How is this even possible? How, how could you explain this? All they could see was a star. Isaiah 9, 6. Here's what it says. For to us a child is born, a child is given, will be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It's almost inconceivable to think that no one went with the wise men to see Jesus. And the, the question that's begging to be asked is why? Why didn't anyone else go? Well, maybe they were too busy. He was just too busy. Isn't that a common excuse? Maybe a common excuse then. It's a common excuse now. You know, I've got too much going on. I've got a lot on my calendar. I've got a lot of responsibilities. I can't rearrange my schedule. You know, I, you know I'd like to come to church, bring my young family with me, but, you know, there's, there, are, there are things on the schedule. We just can't fit that in. The average Christian now in America who attends church regularly only comes one out of four Sundays. And in places in the country where... Uh, seasonally, the weather's better and that sort of thing. And so, so folk, folks have opportunity for more outside activities year-round. It's one in six weeks. You know, I'd like to come and enter, 
act with other Christians and share my life with them in a small group and, and bring my children so that they can get trained and educated in the foundational principles of the faith so that when they're old enough that they, they'll have a place to stand and when culture around them erodes until there's, n- there's nothing that's actually meaningful or true anymore, they will know what's true and what isn't, and they'll have a place to stand. I really don't there's It doesn't fit into the schedule. I mean, because we got, you know, Sunday mornings, we also do soccer, and, and we also do dance. And, and so the priorities are askew. And they're, and they're just off. And I know everybody's doing it. And that's why many of us get caught up in it. I know, I know it's happening and, and why people feel pressure to participate. You know, you want the best for your kids. There's another phenomenon. Can I appeal to parents today? There's a phenomenon that there is science now to support. We, we actually know what's happening to the emerging generations because these schedules of these kids and these families are so highly structured that there's no free time. And so what we know is this lack of freedom and choice-making in children in emerging generations, they reach adulthood now and they don't know how to make a decision because they don't have enough opportunity to practice that process as they're growing up. You don't see a lot of free-range children anymore. Every, you know, we, we, got, we got this class and then that event and then that school activity and then there's a church stuff and, then, and, and, it's, and it's, it's so highly scheduled that there's no time for kids to actually learn how to, how to be independent thinkers. And so the science is there. It's, this, is not, this is not a matter of debate. Emerging generations, for no fault of their own, are arriving at a place now where they can't decide a major in college, they can't decide on a, on a career, they can't decide who to get married to, they can't decide whether they're going to have children or not, they can't decide where to settle, they can't decide where to buy a house. We don't want to buy a house because, you know, that might interrupt our flexibility and our, you know, our, the, the way I want, because I don't know for sure what I'm supposed to be doing. So you have this failure to launch. It's not good. Everything gets delayed, and it has this consequence all the way through life. And so people just say, well, I'm too busy. Let me put this statement on the screen. Often we allow busyness with matters that are temporal to keep us from seeking the eternal. And that, you know, duh, here's your sign. Maybe we're too busy, but here's what I think the real reason was in Jerusalem when the wise men were there. I think Herod and the scribes and the scholars and the other Jews in Jerusalem, the reason they didn't go to Bethlehem to check it out is because they were afraid. They were afraid. When Herod is faced with this reality, he and the others stayed in Jerusalem doing what they'd always been doing, living the way they'd always been living, and being who they'd always been. And we do the same thing. When we're angry in life, we want to stay angry because we get used to being angry. We're comfortable with being an angry person. And we know instinctively that if we, if we go chasing down Jesus, that he's not going to allow us to stay angry. And so we stay away. We stay away from Jesus. When we're selfish and proud, 
We stay away from Jesus because we know darn good and well if we hang out with Jesus, he's not going to allow us to maintain that stubbornness and pride. When we're full of self-pity and we hold on to our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups, we get used to those things. And the thought of being liberated from those hurts, those wounds, is too painful for us. So we stay away from Jesus because we know if we, if we pursue Jesus, he's going to want to go there and initiate the painful process of getting healed from all those wounds and hurts. When we're unfaithful to what we know is right because we know it's easier than living with integrity, we stay away from Jesus because we know. If we go chasing Jesus, things have to change. When we want to be in charge of our own destiny and refuse to get off the throne of our own life. And I listen, I'm in control here. I make the decisions for my life. I've decided, decided who I'm going to be and how I'm going to be in the world. And I don't need anyone, including Jesus, telling me what to do. I know darn good and well there's only room for one person on the throne. It's either me or Jesus. If I go chasing Jesus, he'll want to be on the throne of my life. So we just don't go. We just don't play along. Let's be honest. King Herod knew there was room for only him to rule the country. And it's either Jesus, he thought, or it's me. Many of you know that we've had trouble with our electricity in our building. This is the first time it's gone off twice at one time. And... I've made an appeal. We've, t- we've talked to everyone except the federal government about <laughs> how to find this problem and fix it. And so far, no one, no one has been able to get to it. It's a mystery, mystery of science. But here we are. We're doing, what's happening right now, we have battery backup. So when, when, the, when the things go off, the batteries pick up right away. So we're on battery power, and we're sophisticated like that. <laughs> So here we are. But make no mistake about it, Jesus was not born into our world to be oohed and awed over as a baby or to be, you know, cuddled as a toddler. He was born king of the Jews and indeed of all mankind. That's who he is. He came to rule. He came to be Lord of all. And when you know that, my simple point is this, it requires courage to come to him. We have, we have an entire population percentage of our culture right now who perceive themselves in the world primarily as those who have been offended. I'm a victim. I didn't grow up on the right side of the tracks. My parents weren't educated. I didn't have a chance at a good education. And so, you know, poor me was me. Or I'm from a, I'm from a tribe or a sect or a skin color that's, that's somehow oppressed. And therefore, all of my problems can be, can be summarized by my victimization. To the degree that you see yourself in the world as a victim is the degree to which you will fail to reach your God-given potential in the world. 
Because God stands ready to say to you, listen, I know you've been hurt. I know you've been wounded. I know, I know, the, I know there's hang up as, as a result of that. But I'm the great healer. I'm the great physician. I will restore you and I will reparent you and I will put you on solid ground. And you can embrace your destiny and you can embrace your sense of purpose. And you can be everything that I have given you to be in your potential. Because I'm a God who can make everything good come out of bad things. This business about Christmas, this is wonderful. It's wonderful news. But listen, you, get, you have to pray for eyes to see and then the courage to follow. Because if you don't have courage, you can't follow Jesus. Because <laughs> it's, it's too much if you're not courageous. <sighs> I'm encouraging myself right now. Here's the last thing. Last thing we can learn from these wise guys, and it's really important. It was the humility they had to worship. Now think about it. They had eyes to see, courage to follow, but I think most importantly, they had the humility to worship. Look on the screen at Matthew chapter 2 verse 11, our text. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Now remember who these guys are. Remember who they are in the world. They're highly educated. They're wealthy. They're powerful. They have, they have lots of friends. They have lots of status. They have servants with them. They have this huge train of supplies. All of them have their own caravan. I mean, they're carrying gold for crying out loud. Frankincense and myrrh, most valuable commodities in the world. And here they are. I mean, they've got all this stuff. Yet upon entering a humble house in an unoccupied country, these men of influence and power fell on their knees. Watch, see, see the picture. Bowed their heads and worshiped the newborn baby of a poor young Jewish family. Who does that? And why? This newborn child hadn't done anything. He didn't have an army, he didn't have any subjects, he had no kingdom. He's not in a palace, he's in a barn. He has, he has no influence, he's not performed any miracles, he's not made any prophetic statements. So why? Why then did they worship that baby? Well, the answer to that is that we don't worship God primarily for what God has done. We worship God primarily for who God is. We recognize who he is and we worship. Remember, they had eyes to see and courage to believe. They found the one they were looking for, the one that was going to offer the more that they needed in their life to bring fulfillment and satisfaction. They believed him to be the Lord and the creator God. He was... He was and is life to them and also to us. They were mortal. They perceived him as an eternal king. He was love and righteousness and beauty and hope. God put a star in the sky and those guys had the eyes to see it and the heart and the courage to follow it and then the humility to say, I need something more than myself. I've achieved a lot in life. I've you know, I climbed the mountain. I've got everything the earth has to offer, but I'm going to bow my heart and my life to that king 
because I need him. Most people spend their whole lives looking for something. And the answer is that we're all looking for someone. His name is Jesus. He started out as a baby. And today he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I promise you we'll spend eternity worshiping him. For all he's done. And for who he is. One more verse of scripture. John chapter 1. If you'll look on the screen. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him. He gave the right to become the children of God. Isn't that beautiful? You know, those verses are sad. They're sad because most of the... Most of those in Jesus' day rejected him. Most in our day reject him. That's sad. It's almost impossible to ignore the signs if you really look for them. But these verses are also glorious because they state that all who come to Jesus become the children of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power the right to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do you believe today? Do you have eyes to see? Yes. Eyes to see? Courage courage to follow? Humility to worship? That's what wise people do. And wise people still seek him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, like the wondrous star that guided the wise men to the Christ child, you've placed signs along our path, all of them meant to lead us to you. Let me ask you, friend, if you're in the room today or watching online within the sound of my voice, are you ready to receive, whether for the first time or in a deeper and more meaningful way? the one, the only one who can give you peace, the one who offers himself in Jesus. If that's you today, and I know I'm speaking to someone, then humble your heart and pray this simple prayer. Everyone pray it out loud after me. Are you ready? Out loud after me. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Give me eyes to see. Take your rightful place on the throne of my life. Give me courage to follow. I worship you as my Savior and Lord. Give me the humility to worship you. I give my life to you in Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. 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 Would you stand with us?